So today the Lord has us in the book of Ephesians. So read in your hearing Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. We actually did look at a passage in Ephesians regarding the doctrine of the church. We looked at a passage also in chapter 4 and let us be reminded that, you know, the way the Apostle Paul works with these letters, with these epistles, uh, is that he begins with doctrine. In the case of the Ephesians, he has uh, begun with three chapters of doctrine. And then when we look here at uh, the, the, the last three chapters, 4, 5, and 6, we see its application here. And so it seemed appropriate as we're looking at the sweep of God's revelation through the Scriptures, Genesis through Revelation, it's appropriate for us to consider what it is, what it is that God is specifically revealing to us uh, that in some ways perhaps we could say is unique to the book of Ephesians. And so it seems appropriate that we look to the book of Ephesians not only for the application of doctrine regarding the church of God, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also I'm proposing to you the paradigm, the purpose, and the process of new life in Christ. What does it look like? Again, the paradigm, the the purpose, and the process of new life in Christ. Some have rightly indicated that the book of Romans uh, is perhaps the most comprehensive and glorious expression of what the gospel is and how to respond to it. And some would also say that the book of Ephesians is the most sublime of all of the expressions of the gospel. And so we will see that here today. Let's look at this passage and then consider its application here. So beginning in verse 17, I'd like to look, spend a few moments in each of the individual verses And then consider its larger application. Verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord. Now, it is appropriate for us uh, to see that the Apostle Paul here is bringing a, a great solemnity, a great gravity to what he is saying here about the application of Scripture. We, We have a contrast between the way the redeemed are to live and the way the unredeemed live. He says, no longer walk as the Gentiles. And his reference to the Gentiles uh, is certainly uh, not not about an ethnic, excuse me, an ethnic distinction that would separate them from Jews, but simply uh, the idea here in this reference to Gentiles is those who are unredeemed. The church at Ephesus was completely made up of Gentiles for the most part. No doubt there were some Jews there, but nonetheless, everyone was a Gentile in that case, but you had the redeemed and the unredeemed. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is no longer live like the unredeemed. In the vanity of of their minds and the purposelessness of their minds, the futility of their minds. That's a description of those without Christ. <clears throat> now, we, we can describe those without Christ in a number of ways, right? We can say, well, they're unredeemed. They're not going to heaven. They don't have a relationship with God. They're not part of a church, this sort of thing. But in this particular passage, in this note, he He brings an emphasis on this idea of the vanity, of the futility of their minds. What it is they think, the purpose, their understanding of why they're here. And we've we've discussed this before. We've talked about it, for instance, in the doctrine of the church. We've discussed ideas uh, that the Bible helps us to understand when we go to a biblically faithful church, what should we expect? What are we looking for? Because if we... if, if we're not looking for that thing that God has intended uh, for the church to be, then no doubt we're going to be a people who are going to be disappointed at what it is that God has revealed in His Word and why He has brought us together. And we see, as is true for all of life, uh, the redemption uh, involves a complete renovation of an individual such that they can enjoy those things for which God created them. 
No longer in the futility of their minds, as the Apostle Paul says. Verse 18, they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Their understanding, their mind, their intellect is darkened. They're alienated because of the hardness of heart. And I want to draw you into what I am persuaded is a very significant, if you will, paradigm of this whole process of the new life. And that is simply this idea of being in relationship to the triune God and to His people. In other words, what is redemption about? What is the new life about? Is it about me simply enjoying in isolation a relationship to God? Or does it have something to do with relating to Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and God's people? And what we see here, even in this process of change, that the purpose behind the exhortations is something that is very openly relational. And that's the idea that we see here. They're alienated from the life of God. This is the idea. Verse 19, they become callous. They're past feeling. Likely, most of you have had a callous. Maybe you've noticed with that callous that you, you would run... Anything from something very smooth, a feather, to a wood rasp, and you would notice that you don't feel anything. There's no sensory idea there. And that's, what, that's how the Apostle Paul is describing life without Christ. They're past feeling. They have no, no understanding. There's, there's, there's no recognition, for instance, even of, 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 of morality, of the scriptural idea of walking with the Lord. There's, there's no sense of that. They're past feeling. They're callous. And this idea of being given over, being given over, to sensuality, to practice. It's, it's not really unlike the sense of this idea is frankly that those who are unredeemed are being trafficked by Satan. Now how does that make you feel? Satan is trafficking you into all of these things that are immoral and ungodly. Verse 20, but that's not the way you learn Christ. That's not the way you learn Christ. The Apostle Paul, again, we, we recognize and we looked at the doctrine of the church that the church, uh, the church is an organization uh, that is about teaching. Look at the gifts, for instance, that God has given to the church. Look at what the churches do. Look at the response of what it is that the churches do in the community. And the Apostle Paul is simply saying, when you heard about Christ... You learned Him rightly in such a way as is incompatible with the way the Gentiles walk. Calloused, ignorant, debauched. Verse 21, he continues along these same lines. Assuming that you've heard about Him and were taught in Him as truth is in Jesus. Taught in Christ, in a Christian environment. Now, when you look at the Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul says, you receive Christ in much affliction, right? But he's talking about a different idea here, if you will, not not subtracting the concept of the challenge and difficulty of entering into life as a believer in this sinful world. But nonetheless, he says, in Christ. Again, you were taught the principles of Christ in the context, in the environment of Christ, of a Christian environment. This is what it looks like, and this is the idea that he's saying here. Again, just as it is in Jesus that truth resides, the truth with reference to man's fall into sin. In other words, we receive the truths of God, we walk in the truths of God in regard and in the context to these things. 
that we've fallen into sin, that we're in a desperate condition by our nature, that the salvation that we have is arranged for and procured by Christ, that there is a necessity of faith working through love and this sort of thing, that there are, in fact, Christian principles of conduct of conduct that God reveals to us. This is the context of in Christ. Again, we're, we're inclined in this day uh, to reduce all of the Christian life to this singular aspect of justification, and we're also inclined to reduce the life of the believer as something that has nothing to do with anything except this transaction of justification. It's a complete rejection of all of the conduct that God is calling us to as we have entered into son or daughtership with Christ. Verse 22, put off the old self. Put off the old self. What a challenge. Now, this shouldn't be a fearful thing. The idea isn't that you are no longer going to be the joyful person that you are. And for those of you like me that perhaps are a little bit melancholy, it might not change that. But the intent here is that it's a complete renovation of who you are. You're putting off the old and you're putting on the new. And so this... This is the idea. This is a little bit of insight into the process of change that we'll look at here. Now, no doubt you might have heard these words come out of your mouth. That's just who I am. (laughs) Well, the Apostle Paul has already anticipated that. And he recognizes and affirms to the Ephesians that, yes, this is a challenging thing that God is calling you to. But is the Holy Spirit not all-powerful? Can you not begin to walk in His ways? Consider the process of change in the new birth. Ultimately, the new life resulting from the new birth is oriented toward personal relationships with God and man. An exposition of love to God and neighbor. Now this is important. Again, we want to ask the question, why the put-off? And to put on. Now, while it, it burdens me to use a, an illustration from technology, this perhaps will help you a little bit. Most of you in this room know what a little thumb drive is on a computer, right? Most of you know what that is. It's a little, it's a little, uh, a little device that will that will hold lots of documents or records or pictures, right? And most of you have the experience of having a thumb drive that's full. Or if you're like my dear wife, your phone is full, and so whenever you take pictures, you realize that you have to delete some pictures before you can take pictures. Well, in a sense, the Apostle Paul is showing us and revealing that a certain aspect of the paradigm of the new life in Christ is not unlike this. In other words, the reality is is that you, as an individual, intellectually, theologically, biblically, are always, in a sense, full. You're always full. So in order to change, you've got to take something away and put something in its place. And so you have these biblical alternatives, if you will, and the Apostle Paul brings that up, and that is what I'm referring to as the process of the new life in Christ. But again, why? What's, what's the bottom line? And the bottom line is, is that our God is Trinitarian, and that He's Trinitarian, not for efficiency's sake, so that we can learn to be relational, but nonetheless the reality is, is that our God is ultimately a relational God. And so everything that we do has to do with, involve itself with other people and with God. And so this process of change 
is directly associated with the ways that we interface with our triune God as a model, or rather they are a model, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a model for us, and we, of course, enter into that with other people. And I want to back that up biblically. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. If you were to ask an observant Jew what the most important passage of Scripture was, likely they would turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And they would, they would speak to you this. As a matter of fact, this is the passage that likely is on the doorposts of their homes. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And you say, well, wait a minute, I thought, I thought the Old Testament was about, was about the Ten Commandments primarily. I thought the Old Testament was about all of this long string of exhortations and demands from God. Well, there are commands in the Scriptures. And God calls us to obey those commands. But one of the first things we do is we, when we interact with the Scriptures and with becoming a Christian is we focus on the wrong thing. God came to Abram not with demands but promises. And a very unique promise. I will be your God. In other words, He came to Abram with this idea of relationship. Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. The Lord Jesus records the same idea in Matthew 22, 36-40, when asked which is the great commandment in the law, he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All the law and the prophets? All the law and the prophets summarized by love? Fathers, you want to teach your children something about their moms? When's the last time you studiously, strategically, and tactically created a teaching process in which you taught your children how to love their mother? You might have mentioned obeying her, but how many of you have spent time teaching them how to love their mother? How to love their mother, right? And that's what the Lord Jesus is focusing on this concept. This this is not uh, to the repudiation of any of the passages of Scripture that call us very urgently and exhort us and draw us into obeying the Lord. There is no diminishment of the Ten Commandments in the Lord Jesus Christ. But if we lose the sense of what it is we're doing, that it's in relation one man to another and one man to God, is what we're getting at here in this paradigm. These are commands. And they give structure to our redeemed lives. These commands come to us in Christ. The paradigm of our lives is renovated such that it has much to do with rich fellowship. When God came to Abram with promises in Genesis 17:7 to be God to you, the nature of the relationship was just that, a genuine relationship with the paradigm of the fellowship of the Trinity. <clears throat> now, when we started Providence Reformed Baptist Church, By the grace of God, we recognized a number of things as we began. And one of those things was that our recent experience um, gave a very poor reflection on friendship and on communion. And we recognized uh, that while, while we had perhaps thought about an idea that might be associated with friendship, it wasn't biblical friendship. Because it wasn't based on this idea of a durable relationship that was based on the truth of God. These commands 
give structure to our redeemed lives, as I said, but they're focused on relationships. Again, this doesn't reduce the significance of the Bible's exhortations or place man, redeemed or unredeemed, out of the reach of Almighty God's authority and obedience to Him. But the nature of our relationship to God and to man is about sanctified fellowship. It's, it's about friendship. Please turn to John chapter 17. Now, I want, to, I want to restate the point here because this is very, very important. The Bible persuades us that the concept of personal holiness is an absolute premium in the Bible. God calls us to a careful obedience. And that is the way, one of the ways, that we can enjoy Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This idea that as we become like them... We enjoy them more fully and enjoy their love. We're not purchasing or or tendering as some sort of currency our own faithfulness. But nonetheless, we recognize that God has said, This is the way, walk ye in it. I have bought and purchased you. You are mine, and I mean well for you. And this is the way to enjoy this new life. But what we're saying is, is that, again, this holiness is not something that we enjoy in isolation such that we can brag day by day that we are holy. The big picture, in a sense, in that is that this this urgency of holiness is relational. It has to do with you becoming more like Christ such that you can enjoy Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and... Involve yourself in serving the body of Christ. It's bigger than you. That's the idea. John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer. I begin here in verse 20. The Lord Jesus is praying to the Father. He asks that God sanctify them in truth in verse 17. And he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now I want you to catch the relational aspect of verses 20 to 26. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me. That they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you love me. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me, where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. 25, O righteous Father... Even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now, I cannot even keep up with all of the pronouns in that passage of Scripture. But the reality, if we walk away from the high priestly prayer and say, yeah, I think, I think the Lord Jesus is, I think He's kind of onto this, this fellowship thing. I'm not sure. If, if ever you get this notion that the Christian life is about Jesus and me in isolation, then you, 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 you have come to a very poor and empty conclusion about the Christian life. John 15:5 the Lord Jesus says no longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you This is a very different and unique idea distinguished from the unregenerate Again Paul makes the point in Ephesians 4:17 no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds Part of the futility is the absence of the application of the Trinitarian relationship upon the blood-bought redeemed. Now, 
we can walk down the road of our own experience and see that this is true. We tend to view friendship, for instance, from an unredeemed paradigm. The Lord Jesus says, I have called you friends. Well, if you think about friendship in terms of networking, that illustration is going to be lost on you. If you think about friendship as that which is only seemingly mutually beneficial, then that illustration is going to be lost on you. When you think about friendship as primarily being around people because they make you feel good and view them as the essence of friendship, then when the Lord Jesus says, I have called you friends, do you see how that you're going to get the very wrong idea? Of course, we run into the same issue when we speak of God as Father. The unfortunate reality is, is that many people don't have very faithful fathers, and so when they think of God as Father, that gives them grave concern. But just because there are bad fathers doesn't mean that we have done away with the entire vocation of fatherhood. I've got it on good authority that it's, it's still good. And that God still affirms the term. He's still our Father. Our strength is primarily in Christ. If our strength is primarily in Christ, then we're freed up to serve others and not use them. We think of friendship often in terms of using people. This is kind of a a bit of an ugly way to describe it, but nonetheless, we should admit in our own day, we look upon friends very differently than what the Lord Jesus is saying here. And us becoming like Christ, putting off the old and putting on the new, again, is not about an isolated situation. It's about me in relation to Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and other believers in Christ. Again, we may see the utility of truth-telling or not stealing other people's things, but do we view it in the context of relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ and with our Trinitarian God? J.I. Packer says this. He says, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well. Now, when you think of God, what do you think of? Many people think of God as judge. God is judge and I am A prisoner declared free. Do you know what happens to prisoners in prison when they're declared free? The door opens, and they stand there alone, outside the gates. That isn't the relationship that describes a father and a son. When you think of the father... In heaven, do you think of him in terms of being a father in heaven and you are his child? This relationship. How many of us have a relationship with a judge? Now, I know a judge, he's a fine man. Father and son, father and and daughter. Among absolutely everything that the fall of man negatively impacted was the idea of fellowship and friendship. Now again, this theme, friendship of fellowship, let's look at what a brief survey of fellowship reveals. Acts 2.42 Acts 2.42 They devoted, that is the believers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. 
to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 1 Corinthians 1.9 God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of His Son Jesus Christ our Lord. That's interesting. So the Apostle Paul, when writing to the Corinthians, has decided to make a synonym of the Christian life. And what did he say it was? He said it's like being justified. It's like being freed from prison. Is that what he said? No. He said it's like being in fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. A synonym for being redeemed is being in fellowship with Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.16 The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? This word participation is translated from the word that is most typically used as fellowship. The fellowship of the blood of Christ. The fellowship of the body of Christ. Again, the Apostle Paul is saying the same thing. This life in Christ is identified as fellowship. 2 Corinthians 9.13 By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Now, the Apostle Paul is uh, referring to the subject matter of the Corinthian church collecting money for the poor believers in Jerusalem, and he's speaking about it in terms of fellowship. Fellowship. In the ESV, that's translated as contribution. Philippians 1.5, because you're of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul expresses great joy because of the Philippian church's partnership or fellowship in the gospel. This church's involvement in gospel endeavors is described in terms of fellowship. Philippians 3.10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul's greatest expression of his Christian experience is knowing the fellowship of his sufferings, being in union with Christ to the extent of this depth of fellowship. Fellowship with the sufferings of Christ to enter into. It's, it's, not, it's not terribly unlike uh, the idea of being a soldier, for instance, in a very difficult battle, uh, and this person uh, having experienced the same as another soldier would be able to say, yes, I've been in the, I'm in the fellowship of those who were involved in this battle or that. The Apostle Paul, he regales in this idea that he, he knows Christ, he's enjoyed relationship to Christ to the extent that he's in the fellowship, not only of the good days, but of the sufferings of Christ. <clears throat> Lastly, I should say next to last, there's Philemon 1.6. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, the little book of Philemon, it's a little letter the Apostle Paul wrote to Philemon. It was on the occasion of a slave of Philemon. His name was Onesimus. And Onesimus ran away from Philemon. Philemon was a church leader in his community. He apparently was very effective. He was a friend of the Apostle Paul's. And so Onesimus ended up being redeemed. He came to be with Paul for a time, and Paul wrote a letter back to Philemon. And not only did he indicate likely that Onesimus stole some things from Paul, or excuse me, from Philemon, Paul said, I will pay for that. But he said this, I pray that the sharing or the fellowship of Christ may become effective. In other words, Philemon, you're very involved in the fellowship of Christ, and I want to urge you to bring into the fold of fellowship Onesimus because he is now a believer. Paul is saying to Philemon, Philemon, 
in, in the most delicate and gentle terms I can say, put your money where your mouth is. Is this thing of fellowship? Is it a thing? And if it is a thing, then Onesimus is a part of that. And so let's, let's enfold him into the sweetness of Christ because that's, in fact, who he is. The fellowship of Christ and the saints is the fruit and essence of saving faith. And so Philemon should see that this fellowship, which he has so eagerly involved himself in with the church, should also be applied to the situation with Onesimus, who is now a believer. Lastly, 1 John 1.3, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul indicating that the essence of the Christian life to be brought into fellowship with believers, which is actually to have fellowship with the Father and the Son. Fellowship. In Calvin's commentary on Ephesians, he speaks about the actions of the body of Christ. And the idea that he has when you think about the different parts of the body, you know, when we think about the human body, right, we think about the parts, you know, we've got wrists and elbows and muscles and, and all that sort of thing. And, and John Calvin, he, he has this idea that, that Part of the idea being carried here is that each part of the body is not, if you will, a pool of God's grace, but a river. In other words, if my wrist is going to enjoy all the benefits of the blood pumping through my veins from my heart, then my elbow has to allow it to pass by and, in fact, allow it to be carried. Does that make sense? And so the reality is, is when we have this truncated, very really, if you will, perverted understanding of the Christian life, we're inclined to cardiomyopathy. I know you guys are glad to know that. Well, cardiomyopathy has to do with the pooling of blood, apparently, and I'm only having to take the definition from this from somewhere else, because I assure you I don't understand it. But the reality is, is that some of us are inclined to be pools of God's grace. We collect it. And it goes no further. But God intends that we're rivers of God's grace, because the source of God's grace isn't the pool. It's the abundant giver, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we think about this body again. The purpose of the gifts is not so that we enjoy them in isolation, but that we're freed up because of the power of Christ to serve others, not use them. Our strength, in fact, isn't coming primarily from our friends. It's from the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can then build up, as the Bible says, the body of Christ. Sanctification isn't, in fact, about giving you bragging rights for holiness. It's about serving other people. So that's the paradigm. It's about fellowship. It's about fellowship. I'm just going to give you one more example of this, and then I'm moving on to purpose. I want you to think about the way that evangelicals speak of marriage today. That's a hot topic. I mean, we're talking about egalitarianism, we're talking about complementarianism, we're talking about the nature of men and women, and I assure you that I affirm with the Scriptures that, that, uh, that an individual husband is to be the leader of his home, that God has called him to that, and so forth and so on. But nonetheless, in the midst of all of this, there's a lot of talking going on about roles, efficiency, submission, respect, and love. You hear a lot of that, right? 
I'm not hearing the evangelical talking heads majoring on that which is major. And that's friendship between a husband and a wife, which reflects the warmth and redemptive power of Christ and which cannot help but gain the attention of a critical watching world regarding marriage. I wasn't taught that about marriage in the faithful Baptist church that I grew up in. I can't remember one time my loving, tender teacher encouraging me to create a beautiful friendship in my wife. It had more to do with the mechanics and so forth and so on. It had to do with what I expected of her and what she expected of me. It's to walk away from the essence of the Christian life. It's about fellowship and friendship. We can look no further than our own passage of Scripture earlier in this chapter 4, 4, 2, bearing with one another in love. 4, 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace. 4, 4, one body, one spirit, one hope. 4, 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. 4, 6, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, if that doesn't have anything to do with fellowship, I don't know what it's saying. If it doesn't have anything to do with togetherness, I don't know what it's saying. If that doesn't have anything to do with us walking together faithfully, then I don't know what it's saying. But I'm persuaded that, as are those who have gone before us, that it means just that. Now let's look at the purpose. The purpose of this new life in Christ, the purpose of putting off the old and putting on the new, and this will be a short section, and I draw your attention to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. So you want to know what it is. Why am I... Why am I drawn to give such urgency and energy? Why am I drawn to burn thousands of calories a day in order that I might enter into Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 32? Why is that? You should ask yourself that question. Why is that? And then you should turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. The apostle has anticipated this very question from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. There's something that you can sink your teeth into, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Is that enough? Is that enough for you? To be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being? that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you're rooted and grounded in love, that you have strength to actually comprehend what it is that God is doing with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth? What is this thing of Christ's love? Verse 19, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. To be filled with the fullness of God. Is that enough? I knew it would be. The paradigm, the purpose, and now the process, putting on Excuse me, the putting off and the putting on. Well, the first thing noted here in this new life is verse 25, having put away falsehood. And you say, well, how do I put away falsehood? Yeah, that's easy. I just stop lying. 
But the Apostle Paul says, well, that's so fast, actually. The biblical alternative to lying isn't to not lie. Now, there is no place in the Scriptures where you can go to be commended for a lie. The Ninth Commandment seems to make that pretty clear. The Lord Jesus certainly affirms that. But we see the biblical alternative is from falsehood to truthfulness. It's not that I stop lying or even that I shut my mouth. It's that I speak the truth. I speak the truth. And further, why is that? Verse 25, for we are members of one another. Oh, that's that fellowship thing that the pastor's talking about. In other words, why? Why am I so exercised about truthfulness? It's not merely so you can enjoy obeying the Ninth Commandment. And you should enjoy obeying the Ninth Commandment. But there's more to it than that. Not merely in speaking, but the question is, are you who you say you are? This is integrity. It also has to do with speaking the truth. I've heard all kinds of guys wind jam on integrity and faithfulness. Empty. Empty, empty, empty. That's lying. Right? That's the old man. The new man is truthful for a purpose. When speaking the truth, do you speak in such a way to cultivate deeper friendship in Christ? Or do you fall in with those who speak the truth and let the chips fall where they may? Tell the truth. Yes. But can you do it in such a way to cultivate fellowship and not dash it on the rocks? This is not so much truth as human pride. You've got to figure out how to say what needs to be said in the context of growing friendship. Can you detect the difference between conviction and empty pride? That difference is the distinction between truth and falsehood. Now, verse 26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. The biblical alternative to frequent sinful anger is occasional righteous indignation or anger. And what the Apostle Paul is telling us is, you guys are inclined in the old man to be angry about all kinds of stuff in really sinful ways. However, there's some stuff going on that you should be really angry about. And you're blowing it. Right? They don't understand about this thing of righteous anger. About the honor of God. He discusses that at great lengths in his letters to the Corinthian church. turns out here that the devil is in the anger business. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Verse 28, let the thief steal no longer, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Is that the biblical alternative to stealing? Get a job? Nope. It isn't. It's about the fellowship. Now, yes, you don't need to steal. You should get a job. But the ultimate idea is that he gets a job. Why? So he can give to those in need. There's the fellowship. There's the relationship, right? That's the idea. I'm really not trying to trick you here. All right, from stealing to giving to those in need. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good. Oh, that's it. We From corrupting communication to good communication. Is that it? Is that the end of communication? 
You guys are already trained up. We've already figured it out, right? No, no. No, it has to do with building up the body, right? With grace giving. And then he, he goes on with another one of the Pauline lists here. We're putting away bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, which is like big words, loud threatenings, slander, malice, and we're putting on kindness to one another, tenderheartedness and forgiveness. Now, I don't want you to get the impression this is only about being nice. It's about a complete renovation in your life such that you strategize day by day on how you can invest in others in the body of Christ and how you can display the love of Christ such that others, as they inquire about the love of Christ in you, can answer. When is the last time... Someone observed your relationship with someone else and said, I think I want to know about this Jesus thing. When's the last time that happened to you? Because Peter anticipates this idea, 1 Peter 3.15, he says, In your hearts honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So how do they know we're believers? What does the Bible reveal about that? Well, you say, well, they know I'm a believer because every morning on Sunday at 10 o'clock I drive out my driveway and I go to church and I come back later on and they should know. That's not what the Bible says, though. The Bible indicates that they'll know we're Christians because of our love. So if nobody's asking us about this Jesus, then it seems to me that that may be a reflection on the conspicuous or lack of conspicuous nature of our love one to another. Now, I've got to tell you, though, I think, I think Providence Reformed is kind of advanced in that area myself personally, but nonetheless, yeah, I'm a little biased. We're a loving people, but we've got miles to go before we sleep, as they say. Let us pray.